0: Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: It's 1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. An abbreviated program today, uh, Brewers Baseball. It's game three of the series between Arizona and the Brewers. I think our coverage starts shortly after 2 o'clock this afternoon, so only a two-hour program today. And just a quick programming note, um, I, I'm off tomorrow and Friday attending to some personal business. I will be back on Monday. All right, let us get started. Let me kind of back into this topic. I went to college. Long story, but I went to college at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, South Dakota. Vermillion, South Dakota, and again, it's a kind of a long story how a kid from Milwaukee ends up out there for college, but it was an interesting three and a half years, and um, it's, it's a small town. I think the... Back when I was there, maybe the town was maybe 10,000, maybe a little bit less when school was in session, a lot less than that when school wasn't. Vermilion, South Dakota is in the extreme southeast corner of South Dakota. You drive um, through Minnesota. You get to Sioux Falls. You turn left. You go south about 60 miles, and there's Vermilion. It's in this. It's in the corner. You're right by Nebraska. You're right by Sioux City, Iowa. So in Vermilion, South Dakota. Um, I and, and it was a very, very small town, no no question about it. There was, I think it might have been my freshman year, that they decided that they were going to open, now I said this morning when I was telling the story, I said they were opening a Dairy Queen. It was either a Dairy Queen or a Taco John's, which was at the time kind of like the equivalent of Taco Bell. All right. But it's either a Dairy Queen. I'm going to say it's a Dairy Queen, but it could have been a Taco John's. My my memory is kind of clouded. It was a long time ago. And for the grand opening of the Dairy Queen, you had every dignitary from like a 50-mile radius that came. Now, the governor wasn't there. The congressman and senator weren't there, but you had mayors from surrounding community. You, you had—I mean, it was a big deal. They had a ribbon-cutting thing for the opening of the Dairy Queen. So here's a truth, so here's the, this kid from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who's just sitting there thinking. It's a Dairy Queen. I mean, I, I look, don't get me wrong. I like Dairy Queens as well as the next guy. I mean, you know, give me a blizzard anytime. But okay, but it, it's, it's a Dairy Queen. And I mean, we're, we're literally, I'm not making this up. The band from the local high school was there. You've got the ribbon cutting. We've got a Dairy Queen. Okay. So again, and I ended up going to the Dairy Queen. That that was fine. But I remember, and this is this guy from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm from the big city. And I'm just kind of shaking my head saying, okay, it's a Dairy Queen. All right. Okay. So I was thinking about that as somebody two days ago was talking to me about what we have going on now, which is um, IKEA. Now, uh, today, of course, is the grand opening of the ikea store down in oak creek um ikea is well it's it's sort of it's a it's a Scandinavian furniture store is what it essentially is. And and you assemble the furniture. OK, so it's and, and this is the 48th store. People, I, 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 Ikea is kind of like a cult. People who are into it are really into it. One of the biggest Ikea stores in the country is in Schaumburg, Illinois, and that attracts people. They, they come from all over to do it. So you've got the, the furniture store that's there and you can walk through the giant facility and you can see how they have rooms set up with the different furniture. And they've got a restaurant that serves Swedish meatballs and things like that and and you know you're going to see if you turn on the television or listen to the radio news you're going to just see all the stuff that went on today people as you heard on our reports were were getting up at two and three o'clock in the morning to drive to the ikea to stand in line at 5 a.m so the thing would open at at 8 a.m so they could be in there now i i again i i've never been to an ikea and candidly, Scandinavian furniture isn't necessarily my taste, but but I, I, I get it that it's I get it that it's it's a wonderful store. It's a great thing on for the region, and, and hopefully, it will attract perhaps other similar sorts of of stores there to that area. So I mean, I I think it's it's super, especially if it's able to develop this cult following. But just as I was thinking the other day about how. Decades and decades ago, I'm standing in Vermilion, South Dakota, and watching the high school band play as they open the Dairy Queen. I I had a friend of mine who was from Chicago who had been listening to the hype about IKEA, who said to me, Jeff, what is going on in Wisconsin it, it's a furniture store. Now, admittedly, a nice furniture store that has all this stuff. But if people lost their minds, I mean, it's it's a furniture store. And I did kind of harken back to, again, that, that day in 1970, whatever it is, as I'm standing there watching the high school band play as they're opening the Dairy Queen in Vermilion, South Dakota. I think it is great that the store is opened. I think it is fascinating that there is this interest in there. I think if people want to get up and wait in line to get in at 5 starting at five o'clock in the morning, I I go with God. That's great. If if that's, you know, what you want to do, you know, part of it is probably just kind of the experience of getting in there. But let's tee this up. Is this this really going to be the the kind of game changer that it is being billed as? Or is this overhyped? All right, great to have this store here, especially given all the stuff that's going on with retail, where you hear so many different retail outlets and stores that are closing and malls that are struggling and things like that. I mean, obviously, anything that can bring out shoppers is a great sort of thing. But is this being overhyped, or is IKEA something special? Is it, in fact, worth the hype that it's getting? And if you were one of the people that was – in line starting at 5 o'clock this morning. I'd be particularly interested in talking to you. But do you get all this hype, or is this, again, it's a nice store, wonderful to have it here, but are we over-hyping IKEA? We discuss in a minute. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
0: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs>
1: I really probably should have listened to this before reposting it. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner Radio. The um I the I, <laughs> on, on the morning news today, Eric Bilstadt did a feature on 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 me. And it I a couple of friends of mine called and told me about it. I, I have not had an opportunity to listen to it, but I have I have blindly reposted it and it's it's kind of going viral. So I, I'm I'm assuming it's nice stuff that, that's out there. It's got I know it's got some Jimmy Buffett music behind it and stuff, but I, I just, I just assumed that this wouldn't be Bill Stat screwing with me, you know, during the last week. So it's, it, it is out there. You can have a chance to listen to it before, um, <laughs> before I do. So that's it. All right. Over the years, we have developed a series of what I call Wagner's rules of life, and there have been a, a number of them. A lot of which are, a lot of which are situational to explain stuff that that ends up, you know, going on. And and I I admit that some of them all fit into that, that category that, like, the comedians describe as you can't fix stupid. I mean, I, I understand that, but that, that's not original. It's kind of like, why did you think that that was going to be a, a good idea? There's a story in the local newspaper about a Milwaukee County supervisor – Who's um, running for a seat on the Milwaukee County? Peter uh, Bergelis, I think, is how you pronounce your name. Apparently, he participates in one. He participates in one of these like Zoom meetings, and uh, he, he's not even he's not even a member of this committee. But he's you know he's he's participating in this, and apparently <laughs> apparently he's he's washing clothes. This is his story. He's washing clothes when he's doing this, and he, he's standing there. He's got his shirt off. So, like, you're on the Zoom call, and he's standing there, you know, with his shirt off. Now, his story is, I'm in my laundry room, and I didn't, I didn't realize that the camera was on. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I don't, I don't know that it's the biggest story one way or the other. Other than you just can't fix stupid. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, that's that's one of these things. Here, I'm going to participate in the Zoom call, and one of the questions they ask is, "Were you wearing pants?" And he said, "Yeah, I was wearing pants." Of course, we'll never know. He wasn't wearing a shirt until somebody says, uh, "Do you realize you don't have a shirt on?" It's just okay. That, that's just. It's a sort of dumb thing to do. And a, a lot of times when you have the, the criminal stories, people who are committing crimes. It, they come into the category of you can't fix stupid because you sit there and think, why did you think that that was going to be a good idea? What exactly did you think w- was going to happen? But – so that's that's an overriding theory. But here are, here are six. Number six, elections matter. You get what you vote for. I – here all the time when I talk about issues related to crime and I talk about stupid bail decisions and repeat criminals who are out on stupid bail or they're out on stupid sentences. They're out after having their wrists slapped. They go back. They commit another crime and then you know, they go back into the, the system. And, and, and I'm asked, well, how can this happen? What can we do? Well, OK, Wagner's rule of life number six, elections matter. You get what you vote for. Okay, the district attorney of Milwaukee County, John Chisholm, who's been elected and re-elected and re-elected, he makes no bones about it. He doesn't like putting people in jail or in prison. They go out of their way to try to not do that. That's the policy they have. And so you keep electing or reelecting Chisholm or people like Chisholm, you're going to get those results. The Milwaukee County Circuit Court, you look at these judges and you look where they are coming from. Okay, Scott Walker appoints a bunch of what I would describe as experienced lawyers who are tough on crime. All right, but because it's Scott Walker all right, when these Walker appointees come up for election, we're going to vote against these Republican appointees and we're going to replace them with people from the public defender's office or people with no criminal law experience or people who are really into this alternative justice thing. And they routinely slap people's hands, slap people's wrists. Okay, if these are the people that you elect to these judges, why can we be surprised? Why should we be surprised at this? You know, you elect members of the Common Council. You elect members of the county board. You elect politicians who. When they run for office, say, OK, you know, people should be held accountable. But then when they get in office, they're not willing to take the steps to hold people accountable. They're not willing to call out the DAs. They're not willing to call out the judges. They're not willing to put pressure on Madison to pass laws like mandatory minimum sentencing and things like that. So, I mean, it's this, this giant game that we end up playing. And then people text me or they email me and they say, well, what can we do? Well, the answer is you, you, you can vote these people out, but there's no – No movement to do that. And until you change the people that are making these decisions, you're not going to have any difference. So it's kind of like, okay, don't complain. Yeah, we're sick of cars being stolen. I agree. I'm sick of cars being stolen as well. But, you know, we we don't treat car theft seriously. We treat car theft like it's a game. You know, we don't treat reckless driving, people running through red lights seriously until you hit and kill somebody. But why is that? Wagner's rule of life number six, elections matter. You get what you vote for. Wagner's rule of life number five, four words, stay in your lane. And this is some of the most significant advice that I can give. If Stay in your lane. And by that, I mean, we all have opinions on stuff, but generally speaking, other people don't care about it. And it's just been – I learned early on that, for example, by staying in my lane, that meant that, okay, let's, let's take my experience at WTMJ here. I, you know, I have all sorts of opinions, and I have over the last 25 years, over you know, what goes on on the station outside of noon to three. But my lane is noon to three. I stay in that lane. And if somebody wants to talk to me about stuff going on on my program, that's fine. But I don't have everybody always will say, well, what do you think about what they did on this show or that show or whatever? I i don't it's not. It, I stay in my lane. I, I've got enough trouble worrying about what I have to do from noon until three. I stay in my lane. I tell that to so many friends who you know, say, well, I've, I've got this opinion or that opinion or I want to tell the kids or I want to tell the grandkids. I want to do this. What do you think? And I said, "Whether well, did they ask? No. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Focus on the stuff that you can control uh, because oftentimes when you get out of your lane, all you do is you're not going to accomplish anything. You just frustrate yourself. Wagner's rule of life number five on so many different things. Stay in your lane. Wagner's rule of life number four. And and this is – it's meant to be amusing, but there is a larger point to this. I borrowed this one – actually, I stole it from my friend Patty Karish. Wagner's rule of life number four, just because they make it in your size doesn't mean you should buy it. And and I apply that. It's the, the sub thing about that is is guys, you know, just because they make muscle shirts, you know, you really need muscles to, to wear them. And I, I've always taken that to, to heart. Just because they make it in your size doesn't mean you should buy it. But but here's the, the larger point of this. Appearances do matter. The way you present yourself to the world, does matter. That's how you are judged. It might be unfair, but it's the the reality. If you show up mm-hmm. for a job dressed like a hobo, all right, and somebody else, you know, shows that, you know, at least shows up for the job and, and again, you, you want to dress for what the appropriate job is and you want to be job appropriate. If you're applying to be like a, a roofer or something, I'm not saying you wear a $1,000 suit. But, but the point is you, you want to dress appropriately for where you're going and, and what you're doing. It's one thing if you're going out to state fair on a Saturday afternoon. Like I say, it's another thing if you're going for a job interview. You want to dress appropriately because fair or unfair, that's how people judge you and you could be the smartest guy or gal you could be the the brightest guy or gal you could be the best qualified but if you show up looking like a bum well okay the the person who's making those hiring decisions is going to have a tough time fair or unfair getting past that so appearances do matter. The way you present yourself to the outside world does in fact matter. And I guess the advice is you, you've got to dress for success until you become a success, and then you can dress any way you choose. All right, when we come back, the top three Wagner's rules of life. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Jeff, this is Charlie Snell, your producer from about May of 2022 to May of 2023. It's been amazing working with you, learning how to do radio, learning how to produce, making all the fabulous imaging that you've worked with for the past uh, year or so. And I wish the best for you in your retirement, whether it's just taking it easy or getting back into being a lawyer. All the best. Love ya. Wagner's rule of life number three. Take this to the bank. Play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. There is no question at all that you have people who do not believe that there are consequences for bad actions. So, okay, I'm going to steal a car. I'm not going to be held responsible. And, and by the way, there, there's good evidence for that, because what's the, what's the clearance rate in Milwaukee for car theft, like 4%? Meaning, and that's just, that's just cases the cops solve that that's not people who actually get prosecuted that's just hey we've identified the person that stole that car then it goes to the DA's office then it goes to the court system so i mean actually as far as accountability it's probably a lot less than 4% but 4 or 5% whatever the most current number might be but you have these situations where people feel that they can they can steal cars for example then Everybody runs from the police nowadays. Why do they do it? Because they, they, they're not afraid of, of there being consequences because if they're caught, they count on that they're go- they count on not being prosecuted or getting slapped on the wrist or, or whatever. So they, they run. and then a lot of times what happens is when they run, they end up doing more damage. They'll hit somebody. A lot of times, you know, you'll have an innocent person who's driving and just happens to be in the intersection at the time. Somebody's driving 90 miles an hour in the stolen car that blows through it, slams into them and kills the person. And then then finally the system gets involved and the system says, okay, we're going to charge people with stuff. Well, okay, my message to the bad guys is, And then, then inevitably, you know, you have people that come forward and say, well, I just I can't I can't believe that they're holding such and such accountable. And this is my kid and he's a wonderful kid and stuff. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And sometimes what happens is when, for example, you're fleeing the police instead of hitting and killing the innocent person, you lose control of the car. It goes airborne. You smash into the tree and you end up dead. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So maybe, just maybe, if we got back to where it was, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, where everybody didn't run from the cops, and everybody was willing to stop and say, okay, I'm, I'm, see, here's the, si- the silliness about this around here. You're not gonna, so you get caught in a stolen car, nothing's going to happen to you. Nothing is going to happen to you as a practical matter. So why, why make it worse by running? You can stand and say, yeah, officer, I stole this car and I probably stole, you know, I'm going to get turned loose and I'm going to steal three more. Nothing's going to happen to you. The DA's office probably isn't going to charge you. The court system certainly isn't going to hold you accountable. But when you make that decision to run, you make it worse. You make it worse for yourself. You make it worse for the police. You make it worse for innocent people. And sometimes, you know, that worse means you've done something that's so bad that you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life or you're going to end up killing yourself. All right, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Wagner's rule of life number three. Number two, mark this down. Now, <sighs> Wagner's rule of life number two, nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 a.m. Okay, I stand by this. This is one of the first ones that we came up with. Think about, I think what where the impetus of this was a number of years ago, there were... Some professional basketball players, and it's three o'clock in the morning. They're outside of a strip club. You know, they get in a fight with somebody else, and then everybody gets arrested, and then you know, you have all it just it just kind of spirals from there. But think about this: what good happens outside a strip club at two o'clock in the morning? Now, there, my producer Aaron is shaking his head. There's there's nothing, nothing good. Go home, people. I mean, seriously, there's all sorts of variations of this theory. It's like, okay, if you're a 16-year-old in this around here, nothing good happens if you're out on the street at 3 o'clock in the morning. There's nothing good, nothing is good that's going to happen. You should be at home. You know, when you're out on the street in the middle of the night, now, granted, you can get in trouble at any time of the day or night around here now, but, you know, out on the street late at night, parents, you know, Tell your kids, nothing good happens on the mean streets of Milwaukee or, I mean, on the mean streets of Waukesha or whatever at three in the morning. Kids should not be out there when you're in these situations. How many cases do we have that, oh, it's bar time, bars closed at two in the morning, there's a shooting outside in the parking lot. Nothing good happens outside a strip club. Nothing good happens outside a bar. Nothing good happens, you know, on a basketball court, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. Go home, people. That's what they're there for. Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 in the morning. And Wagner's Rule of Life, number one, we have T-shirts. Matter of fact, we used to give out T-shirts like that. Some of you perhaps have them. Wagner's Rule of Life, number one. And this, this came from when I first started doing talk radio because people would reach out to me and tell me that they were offended by this or that. I can't believe you said this. I am offended. I can't believe you take this position. I am offended. I you know, and 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 people were getting offended all the time. And I guess my attitude was, well, okay, you you've got a couple of choices. Radios, for example, have have especially in the old days, they have these, these magical things. They have a button that turns them on and off, and they have a dial that you can switch. So if if you are offended by what you're hearing from the guy in six twenty, that that's okay. There's all sorts of different choices you have, and so that was kind of the the attitude it was like well if you if you don't like this th- that's fine i'm sorry i'm sorry that you're bothered i'm sorry you're offended but it's really it's kind of not my problem which is what led to the genesis of wagner's rule of life number 1 life is tough get a helmet <laughs> it's just the reality of what's going on here you know we're life is hard from time to time and there's going to be stuff that you don't like there's going to be stuff that you don't agree with. There's going to be stuff that you're unhappy with. But you know, in general, you can walk around and you can go, oh, woe is me, you know, this is just so terrible. Or you can recognize that life is tough. Get a helmet. That saying offended people. I would get, oh, I can't believe that you would you would we would say that. And it's just like, well, obviously you are missing the point. So that's my top six Wagner's Rules of Life. I'll review them once more. Elections matter. You get what you vote for. Stay in your lane. Just because they make it in your size doesn't mean you should buy it. Play stupid games. Win stupid prizes. Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 a.m. And Wagner's Rule of Life, number one, life is tough. Get a helmet back with much more in just a minute this is Jeff Wagner
0: congratulations to Jeff Wagner on your 25-year radio career you're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ
1: I do not understand why some politicians just dig their heels in on things I mean Tom Barrett look Tom's trolley folly that the, the streetcar is a disaster and and it's just it's a money pit People aren't riding it. It's going to take over $3 million a year for the next couple decades away from the city's budget, and that means money that can't be spent on cops or on roads or anything else just to support this failing system. And and Barrett's reaction is, let's double down. Well, the reason people aren't riding it is because it doesn't go anywhere. We want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion dollars more to expand it to other places so that, you know, people aren't going to ride it there either. Instead of just simply saying, I've dug a hole, let me fill it in and let's declare victory and walk away. So that Tom's trolley folly is one of the Barrett blind spots. Ron Johnson, Ron Johnson has blind spots as, as well, at least in my opinion. So the story is today, uh, on Friday, you know, he announced that he was going to, he's going to be holding a media event today, don't know what time it is, to highlight adverse reactions to the COVID vaccine. The event will feature eight people, including former Packers offensive lineman Ken Rutgers and his wife, Cheryl, who experienced a severe reaction after receiving her dose of the vaccine. Now, here's the deal. Our way out of the pandemic has been the COVID vaccines. The COVID, the spread of COVID virus is just, it's down, 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 down. The number of hospitalizations is way down. The number of new cases is way down. And let's face it, that's because more and more people have gotten vaccinated. Now, there have been, in certain cases, there have been adverse reactions. So far, for example, out of 300 million doses, of the vaccine, there's been about 1200 cases of heart inflammation in, in younger people. However, not all of those have been verified. Okay. Over 317 million doses of the vaccine have been administered and that the number of people who've had adverse reactions is, is slim to none, slim to none. That's the reality. And so the the number of people who get sick from the vaccines are almost non-existent. It's sort of like the flip side is the people out there who are, are arguing that, well, you know, even if you've been fully vaccinated, you shouldn't be out in public and you shouldn't be doing all this sort of stuff because don't you know that even though you're fully vaccinated, there is a chance that you could get sick again. So, I mean, it's the people who even have been vaccinated who don't trust the efficacy of it. They're a problem. But then you have people on the other side who, who just, well, l- let's highlight the problems with the vaccine. I swear for the life of me, I do not understand the fights some of the fights that ron johnson chooses to pick senator johnson has chosen not to get vaccinated you know he says he had COVID; he's got the antibodies that 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 is his that is his choice okay that that's that's fine just like it's an individual choice but for the life of me i do not understand why you end up having a a rally or a press event which would discourage other people from getting the vaccine. If you decide you don't want to get the vaccine, my response has always been go with God. that That's the decision you make. But l- let's face it, that—that's—that that is a minority opinion in the fact that the overwhelming amount of science and the doctors and things like that and the real-world results show that for most people, almost all people, but not all— But most people, you know, the the covid vaccination is going to uh, protect you from getting covid. So why you would have a press conference, a news event or whatever, which picks the relative handful or at least, you know, cherry picks some people who've had adverse reactions. It it is just it's absolutely beyond me. And it's counter to. To what we're trying to do, which is to try to encourage most people to get the vaccinations so we can get closer to herd immunity so we can get back to normal. 855 616 1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. And I understand that I I think sometimes there's a piling on effect when it comes to Ron Johnson because you've got a lot of people in the mainstream media who are out to get him. But at the same time, I think I hear some of the stuff that he does, and this is one of them. Why are you having essentially an anti-vaccination media event when I think most of us would understand that for most people, encouraging folks to get the vaccine Is a good
0: idea. This is the best of Jeff Wagner, highlighting the best moments of a 25 year career on WTMJ. Hey
2: there, Eric Bilstead here. Jeff Wagner, my goodness, congratulations. I've known you a long time, been able to work side by side with you for a couple of decades now, believe it or not. In fact, the very first time I cracked a mic on this very radio station, you probably don't even remember this, you were on the air. It was a Saturday. I was producing, anchoring, and you were doing your show. It was such a great time then. It's still so great to hear you on the air now. Congratulations, buddy. Much love to you and the family and to Fran. And
1: hit him straight. Yeah, we're getting funky. But it's not funky music. I'm talking about the comic strip, Funky Winker Bean. bean. Now, I... I- I, I freely acknowledge that, and we talk a lot about the demise of newspapers and things like that, but I, I firmly believe, and I've said this before, that for parents out there, one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is the gift of reading. I, I think that, you know, if you can inspire in them a, a love of reading, that'll take them a long way in life, and I, I mean, I, I grew up, I make no pretense about this, I mean, I grew up. As a kid, I, I started out reading comic strips in the newspaper and I graduated to comic books and I used to collect all the comic books and read these. And, and, and then, you know, from comic books, it, it led to reading other stuff. And, but I, I have this passion for reading that, that carries on to, to this day to the point that in, in any given week, depending on what the books are, I, I mean, I, I read two or three books, you know, a, a week, or at least I, I try to. And not every, some of them are just like light popcorn books, but, but it all started by me reading comic strips and that 's that is actually something that has continued to this day, and as part of my regular routine in the morning when I sit down and prepare the show, one of the things I do is i I read them online nowadays, but i have there are about ten or fifteen different comic strips that that I read, and you know several of them are in the local newspaper, and you can you know download them when you go to the uh, through the internet. One of the comic strips that I got into a long time ago is a comic strip called Funky Winkerbean, which it, it was, it was started in the early 1970s and it, it focused on uh, kids that were in high school and I was in high school in the 1970s and I, I've been reading this for going on 50 years. And then what the artist and the creator has done is at a couple of different times over the years, he did what they would call time jumps where all of a sudden he would just advance the storyline 10 or 12 years. And, you know, with the idea that, gee, I'm not going to keep the characters, I'm not going to keep the characters as children or high school students for, you know, all the time. Here, I'm going to move them up 10 years, and we're going to show, you know, where they are. And then I'm going to move them up another 15 years. And it's been interesting, and the storylines are, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're serious. He's dealt with issues like cancer, and he's dealt with issues like dementia and things like that. But anyhow, the creator is a guy named Tom Badia who... Um, it started out in Akron, Ohio, and he has announced that at the end of the month he's wrapping up the comic strip. And and after fifty years, he's going to be ending the Daily Comic Strip. He says he's gonna maybe publish some new stories and stuff on, on his website. But he but he's backing away from this after fifty years. And I admit I'm I'm sort of I'm very bummed out. He's he's wrapping up this thing, but it's been a part of my you know daily reading you know that just just on a daily basis you check in and and some of the strips are more interesting than others and some of the storylines are more interesting than others but you get to know the characters and you get to relate to the characters and you want to see what's going to happen and now 30 days from now after 50 years these this this comic strip is going to go away and will i get over it yeah but do i have this sense of disappointment about that absolutely I love these comic strips and I have some regular comic strips that I I read on on a daily basis. For me, you know, hands down, I like Funky Winkerbean and uh, it's just I I can see that they're starting to wrap up storylines and things like that and I'm a little bit bummed out. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not going to still continue to read comic strips and stuff, but even to this day and, and maybe it's just a throwback to when I I was a kid, but I I've loved these comic strips. And I, I continue to this day to start my day reading the funny papers. Somebody, somebody says, what about Crankshaft? It's a spinoff. Yes, it is. The Crankshaft uh, comic strip is going to be continuing. That is my understanding. But, um, and they say that some of the funky Winkerbane characters might be making appearances and crossovers. But, yeah, I admit, I'm, I'm addicted to the comic strips. Let's talk to Dave in Milwaukee. Dave, you're on WPMJ.
3: Hi Jeff, how you doing?
1: Good. Okay, you love the comic strips. My
3: favorite, com- my favorite comic strip is Prince Valiant. I've been reading that forever.
1: Do they still? Do they still? This is a dumb question. Do they still even? Do they still have Prince Valiant? Is it just on Sundays or online? Okay, it's online. online. Yeah, Yep. Well, yeah. No, I
4: there's a half a dozen that I read during the week.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for calling. No, I, I, um, right. And, and, Prince Valiant, of course, has been around forever. And I remember that the, the intense, you know, I used to read that a lot. I used to read it when it was in the local newspaper. But right now, I mean, a lot of stuff you, you can just find online. Uh, let's see, Jeff, I remember reading the last Calvin and Hobbes. The emotion was on a par with a loved one dying. I can feel it now. It was wrenching, a testament to the depth of touch the comic reached. Calvin and Hobbes, um, that was an incredibly popular one as well. And I understand from the perspective, well, in the case of the guy that writes Funky Winkerby, he's 75 years old. He's been doing this for 50 years, and there is – I'm sure there's – a lot of pressure. He's not the artist. He's the creator. And he, I think he, then they have said, so apparently the guy who was the artist who actually drew them said that he wanted to retire. So he figured out that this was a good time to do it. And I am sure that the daily grind of having to produce new material, seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year. I'm sure that that, that that's hard for people, Jeff. I certainly have my favorite comic strips, crankshaft zits, Luann. I like Luanne. like Family service, a circus, and I used to love Beetle Bailey and Peanuts. Well, everybody loves Peanuts. Jeff, for me, it's either Dilbert or Garfield. Uh, Jeff, for me, it's Pearls Before Swine. Yeah, Pearls Before Swine. That's, that's one that you have there as well. Jeff, I've completely lost touch with comic strips, but back in the seventies, I loved John Darling, which looked fun, made fun at all the media moguls and celebrities of those days. Well, John Darling, that comic strip was by the same guy that does Funky Winkerbean. Uh, Jeff, for me, Calvin and Hobbes absolutely loved it. John in Wapaka. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
4: Hey there. Uh, I was going to say, uh, definitely uh, Charles Schultz and Peanuts is my favorite comic strip, but I did want to add, I interviewed uh, Tom Baddock years ago about uh, Funky Winkerbean and oh. he was such a great guy, and he actually sent me a, a, a sketch for uh, my wife's
3: uh, wedding with me. So uh, <laughs> oh. Uh, with the character. So just a wonderful person.
1: Oh, that's great. Thanks, Scott. And, and again, it's, I just, I, I mean, I don't know what it is about these these comic strips and the characters that connect to you, but I I mean, he was ahead of his time because, again, he did some of these time jumps, some of the comic strips, Peanuts, and I, I love Peanuts, but Peanuts, they they, they were perpetually young He decided, look, I, I wanna, I wanna show these characters growing up. I don't, I don't, I don't wanna do 50 years of these are the same people and they're stuck in high school. I wanna take them through life. And sometimes that, that had a degree of tragedy. Some people said the comic strip was depressing from time to time. I never found it that way. I just enjoyed it. But in any event, um, if you're, if you love your favorite comic strip, keep loving it because you never know when it might end. For me, Funky Winker Bean pulling the plug at the end
0: of the month. At the end of December, that is. This is the best of Jeff Wagner, highlighting the best moments of a 25-year career on WTMJ. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. It's
1: 1207, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric Bilstead, interesting day around Radio yeah. City here, huh? Yeah. A lot of energy. I like it. It, it, it is energy, and, and this is a very, very interesting day. Let, let me kind of review the bidding for a minute, because, Eric, I know you, you've worked here for a long time mm-hmm. as well. You've been here 19 years? Yeah, All right. I believe it or not. Got, well, I mean, when, when you and I then started... Uh, WTMJ, which originally the call letter stood for The Milwaukee Journal, WTMJ was a privately held company, and it was Journal Communications, and you had the the newspaper, which was one part of it, and then you had the television and radio side of it, and Journal Communications owned a series of TV stations across the country and a series of radio stations across the country, uh, WTMJ, the heritage radio station, probably the, the sort of crown jewel, I would say, in, in in the radio event so it, we were we were a privately held company for for a while in the early 2000s they made the decision to for a variety of reasons to to go public yep. people could invest and buy stock and things like that and the company continued for a number of years and then about three years ago Journal communications kind of split off, and and the newspapers were sold and now are owned by Gannett, USA Today. And the TV and radio properties were sold to Scripps Broadcasting out of Cincinnati. And Scripps Broadcasting was, by and large, it's a TV company. They own TV properties all over the country. They had been in radio a number of years ago but had gotten out of radio so when the properties were sold our radio group came over intact in but it was the only it was the only rate part of, of radio that that they, they owned and so for the last several years now i have thoroughly in- enjoyed working for scripts yeah, Scri- great company Scripps has been a great company the benefits were super all that sort of stuff but but they're a tv company and radio was always kind of the and I say this with affection, but my my sense was the radio properties were always at Thanksgiving dinner. We were kind of the kids' table, right? You know, is that unfair? <laughs> I think it's accurate. You know, and, and again, it's, it's not a knock at all. No, it, it, no. it was it was just a great situation. But that's always been kind of how the the dynamic was. And then about a year ago or so, Scripps made the decision that they were going to divest themselves of the radio properties and our. Our boss, um, Steve Wexler, who's been a big fixture around here for the last, well, since, I, since I've been here 20-plus years, that, that's been kind of Steve's mission was trying to sell off the radio properties to, to good buyers. And uh, that that's pretty much been accomplished. But one of the interesting things is w- where WTMJ ended up, mm-hmm. and that is, of course, with Good Karma Brands. And uh, a new a new purchaser, and we are now officially Good Karma as of today. Yeah, yeah. It's an exciting, different time in the world of radio in Milwaukee. It's pretty cool. And we're, we're both excited about that, but we are joined now by the CEO of Good Karma Brands, Craig Karmazin. By the way, as we do for our first segment of the program all the time, we, we live stream this, Facebook Live slash 620 WTMJ, so you can see both Mr. Karmazin and myself in the studio. Craig, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jeff. But <laughs> well, it's your radio station, I, you know. Whatever. For for people who don't know, Craig, you're you're a fixture in the Milwaukee area. But for people who don't know your background in this industry, I, I think it's fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about that.
5: Yeah. So I uh, started as an intern at uh, WIP Sports Radio in Philadelphia. I was a sports fan growing up in New Jersey who just wanted to work in sports and my dad was in radio and you know I convinced him that, hey, if I get good grades in college, can I get an internship at your radio station? And he worked in radio and he said yes. And so I got the grades I needed to and I was so excited to go to New York to work at WFAN, the biggest sports radio station in the world and be an intern there and He, uh, you know, as it was coming up on the first day, I said, so are we going to drive to work together? How is it going to work? He said, you're not coming to New York. You're working in Philadelphia. (laughs) He's like, I don't want you in the same city as me. So um, I uh, got to commute down an hour and a half every day to Philadelphia to my internship and, you know, fell in love with the business while I was there. Before that, I was a sports fan, so I just wanted to be around sports and sports talk. But I found myself reading the trades and really becoming passionate about the industry. And when I graduated school, I was already halfway to starting Good Karma. I had had a trip to Madison, Wisconsin in uh, October of 1996, which was my senior year of college, and was with a bunch of friends from high school and friends from grade school, and we just fell in love with Madison. And I, you understand, Madison's a pretty good place to recruit to. Sure. <laughs> and, and so we left that weekend, that October 1996 weekend, saying, hey, we graduate in May. We should start a radio station here. We could host and we could sell and we could do the whole thing together. And unfortunately, from the time we left on Sunday morning to when I got back to school on Monday... All my other friends said, oh, we were kidding about that, right? <laughs> they sobered drunk? up, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. right, got it. Okay. Everybody, everybody else sobered up. So I, though, went found out there was an entrepreneurship department at my school and said, hey, I'm starting a sports radio station in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm putting Howard Stern on the radio in Madison, Wisconsin. How do I get credit for that? And so I spent the next nine months working on that. And while I did that, I found a, a great internship in Atlanta at a sports radio station there. And, um, by August of 1997, you know, seven, eight months later. I found radio stations in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, and the reality was I couldn't afford a radio station in Madison, Wisconsin, and was able to make something work in Beaver Dam because there were these highly successful radio stations there. So, a month after my 22nd birthday, I moved to Beaver Dam, Wisconsin to become the general manager and owner of uh, three radio stations in Beaver Dam.
1: Uh, That Good Karma still
5: owns. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, our our Beaver Dam stations, you know, until today uh, was our only other news talk station that we had in the company. So We'd be at the Wisconsin Broadcasters Awards. We'd be winning 10, 11 trophies in the small market radio You know, with our WBEV news team. And we'd be looking up at WTMJ at the major market and being like, gosh, we just want to be the Beaver Dam version of WTMJ.
1: Now, from from the Beaver Dam acquisition, you've really been able to develop a a niche and a a brand with ESPN stations.
5: Yeah. You know, uh, uh, by 2002, we had grown as small market Wisconsin radio operators. But technology was changing so much. And I was scared. You know, I was 27 years old and thinking about what's the next 40 years of good karma going to look like? And the idea of having a bunch of music stations in small towns, I was just worried about that. With satellite radio coming and Internet radio and all these different things. And I really thought if you could find products that couldn't be duplicated... And I thought sports was a natural because we were already doing it pretty well. So I really thought if you could have that credibility of the big brand with ESPN, but find markets where you could connect locally with fans and the business community that could really work. So in 2003, we launched ESPN West Palm. In 2004, ESPN Milwaukee. In 2006, ESPN Cleveland. In 2008, ESPN Madison. And that really drove our growth for almost a decade, was refocusing away from just radio to specifically
1: being ESPN in these markets. Now, a lot of people might say, Craig radio it, it 's it's, it's 1930s you know we 're moving into you know the, the 2020s what, what, what are you doing with radio i mean my gosh you 've got digital there 's tv there 's all these platforms isn 't radio a hundred years old it is, and uh, radio
5: is still a, an amazing amazing mechanism to distribute the content that a lot of people are listening to us on, but also a lot of people are listening to us on an appliance in their home right now, you know, on their smart speaker, or people are listening to us on their app, or people are listening to us on their desktop or their smartphone. And so for me, the heritage is what we were buying right here. The heritage, it's, you know, the biggest stick in the state is awesome. That's great. And a lot of people still consume WTMJ on 620 a.m., But a lot of people also consume it on 103.3 FM. And a lot of people consume it in other ways. And the relationships, the brands, the people, that is what's more valuable today than ever. You know, Netflix is spending $10 billion with a B on content each year. And we're just in the content business, but we have the advantage. Here we are, locally owned, here in Milwaukee, producing content, in news, in sports, in weather, in traffic, things that are now, things that are current, things that nobody else can do the way our team can do them.
1: I've sort of buried the lead, Craig, because obviously, as you know, listeners are very invested in this station and our sister FM station. Can you stick with me through the break? Let me make you a little bit of money and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the future.
5: I'm always good uh, pausing uh, to hear from our great partners. (laughs) Good enough, Jeff Wagner.
0: Hey, Jeff, this is Steve Scafiddi. I want to say First of all, congratulations, 25 years.
5: I remember when I was a kid growing up, no, wait a second, we're the same age almost. I'm just kidding. I have enjoyed our relationship. You've been fun to listen to. I do listen to you when I'm going home. I listen to your show. I get great ideas from it. I wish you nothing but the best. You are one of the best, and you're one of the great reasons why WTMJ and Jeff Wagner show has been so successful over those years.
1: Good luck, my friend. I want to start out, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at JeffWagner620. I've actually had a number of postings over the last couple of um, weeks. But today, it is a public service announcement that we start the program off with. The language police at Stanford are, are back. A couple days ago, Stanford University, which is one of the premier universities in the United States, um, they came out with their findings on what they've been doing for a number of months. It's called their Harmful Language Initiative. And the report is the elimination of harmful language in connection with the initiative. And, well, here's how they describe it. The Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, the EHLI, is a multi-phase, multi-year project to address harmful language at Stanford. Um, this is a priority. The goal of the Elimination of Harmful Language initiative is to eliminate many forms of harmful language, including racist, violent, and biased language on Stanford websites and in the code. The purpose of the website is to educate people about the possible impact of words we use. Language affects different people in different ways. All right. And they'd say, well, by the way, we're not attempting to address everything. So this harmful language that we are about to roll out, it's not necessarily an an exhaustive list, but it is some of the things that you may want to avoid. Now, if if you're going to listen to this and you go through this list, I understand you might say, Jeff. You are making this up. You spent some of your time off just like kind of coming up with words and phrases that, you know, the, the woke crowd would would adopt, that this is kind of like your version of the onion. If you think that au contraire, because if you follow me on Twitter again, it's at Wagner 620 I have a link to the 13-page report on the harm uh, elimination of harmful language initiative. So where do we start? Now, I don't have enough time to give you the the every word that is on the list, but let let me highlight some of the language that you and I should pledge, apparently according to the folks at Stanford, not to use moving forward into 2023. This is not an exclusive list. But the word addict, you know, like he's a heroin addict. You are not supposed to say addict anymore. Instead of saying addict, you may say person with a substance use disorder. Using first-person language helps to not define people by just one of their characteristics. So if you want to say, like, that that junkie just broke into somebody's house and stole a bunch of money, um, well, okay, you would say now the person with the substance use disorder just broke into somebody's house and stole all that money. You are not supposed to say addicted. Instead, you may say hooked Or devoted, because by saying the person is addicted to heroin, you trivialize the experience of people who deal with substance abuse issues. So you must now say devoted. In other words, the junkie laying on the corner with the needle out of his or her arm is devoted to heroin. You may no longer say basket case because, well, you know, basket case in, boy, that person's just a basket case, or I'm a basket case over this issue, because it originally referred to one who had lost all four limbs and therefore needed to be carried around in a basket. So it would be offensive to people who lost all four limbs and needed to be carried around in a basket. Instead, you are supposed to say nervous, okay? You can no longer say blind study, you know, as in we're we're conducting a study and we don't want to know the test results. You know, we want to just find out. We don't want to know the test results, why we're doing them. You now must say masked study, because by using the word blind study, you unintentionally perpetuate that disability is somehow abnormal or negative, furthering an ableist culture. And, of course, none of us want to be ableist. All right. It goes on. You can no longer say committed suicide. You have to say died by suicide, because committed suicide is ableist language that trivializes the experience of of people living with mental health conditions. Huh? You may no longer say crazy, because that is ableist language that trivializes the experience of people living with mental health conditions. So what do you instead say, that was crazy? You say, that was surprising, or that was wild, because saying crazy might offend crazy people. You can no longer say "dumb" as in this is one of the dumbest uses of money that I have ever seen. Instead, you have to say "non-vocal" or "non-verbal," because the phrase "dumb" was once used to describe a person who could not speak, um, and it trivializes that characteristic. So you can't say you can't say "dumb." All right, you cannot say "insane." You instead have to say, uh, let's see, surprising or wild. That would be insane. In other words, this study is absolutely insane. Nope, cannot say that anymore. Let's see, some of the other phrases that you can't say. You can't say sanity check. Nope, because this term could be offensive to those dealing with mental health issues. Instead of saying sanity check, you have to say confidence check, coherence check, or fact check. In other words, you can't say the people who did this study need to have a sanity check. You can't say tone deaf as in, huh, that particular point of was really, really tone deaf because that is ableist language that trivializes the experience of people living with disabilities. Instead of saying tone deaf, you have to say unenlightened. Now, my question would be, doesn't that trivialize people who, in fact, lack enlightenment? You can't say walk in. You are not allowed to say walk in as in, "Gee, I've got a little bit of a cold. I'm going to go to the walk-in clinic and see if they can give me something." Instead, you have to say, "I'm going to the drop, I'm going to the drop-in or the open office." Because if you say walk-in, that is ableist language that trivializes the experience of people living with disabilities. I swear, you cannot make this stuff up. The list continues. All right. Culturally inappropriate You can no longer say bury the hatchet, as in you've had a feud with somebody, but you've decided for 2023 you are going to bury the hatchet. Why? Because using this term is cultural appropriation of a centuries-old tradition among some North American indigenous people who buried their tools of war as a symbol of peace. You can no longer say chief, because calling a non-indigenous person chief trivializes both the heredity and elected chiefs in indigenous communities calling the indigenous indigenous person chief is a slur all right well of course the White House has a chief of staff in the Navy you know you have chief petty officers etc don't get me started you can no longer say guru instead you have to say expert because in Buddhist and Hindu traditions the word is a sign of respect using it using it casually negates its original value I would say this is insane and dumb, except then I would be violating some of the other phrases that are down there as well. You can no longer say low man on the totem pole, as in the new guy or gal is the low man on the totem pole, because that trivializes something that is sacred to indigenous people. You can no longer use the phrase tribe, as in he's part of our tribe or she's part of our tribe because that historically was used to equate indigenous people with savages. Instead, you have to say friends, network, family, support system. And then it goes on into the gender-based terms. And again, less you think that I am just pulling these out of thin air, check it out. Again, it's Wagner at 620 WTMJ. And, of course, gender-based terms, you can no longer say chairman, chairwoman, congressman, congresswoman landlord, landlady. Instead, you have to say property owner. Gee, I'm going to give my rent check to the landlord. Nope, don't do that anymore. That is inappropriate. You say, I'm giving it to the property owner. You can't say mailman, even if your mail is delivered by a guy. You can't say, hey, I'm waiting for the mailman to bring me that check. Instead, you must say mail person or postal carrier. You can also say letter carrier. You can no longer say man hours. That's, you have to say Person hours, effort hours, labor time. Did I mention how dumb this was? Mankind. You cannot say mankind anymore because the term reinforces male-dominant language. You can no longer say man-made. Instead, you must say made by hand because the term reinforces male-dominated language. You can no longer say manpower because that term reinforces male-dominated language. Instead, you say workforce, staffing, staff resources, or personal resources. It goes on. You can no longer say the word abort, as in we're going to abort the mission, because that term can unintentionally raise religious and moral concerns. Okay? My favorite, and it's where we started, you are no longer supposed to say American. So like Lee Greenwood's, I'm proud to be an American. No, no, no. You cannot say that anymore. Instead, you have to say U.S. citizen. I'm proud to be a U.S. citizen. Why can you not say American, according to Stanford? Because the term often refers to people from the United States only, thereby insinuating that the U.S. is the most important country in America, which is actually made up of 42 countries. This, I swear, is one of the dumbest things that I have ever seen. You can't say circle the wagons. Instead, you have to say take a defensive position because Hollywood movies about settlers migrating west contributed to this phrase, which means the savages are about to attack. So you can't say that. You cannot say, um, let's see, Indian summer. You have to say late summer because the term infers that indigenous people are chronically late. Huh? See, I, I, I've never even thought of some of these things. You cannot say Karen because, um, you know, the term Karen has gotten to be interpreted as being um, a certain group of people based on behaviors. Instead, you are not allowed to say Karen. Instead, you're supposed to say demanding or entitled white woman. Now, I don't know about you, Charlie, but I would think I would make an argument that if you're going to be offended, I, I think I think saying you are a demanding or entitled white woman is at least as offensive as calling somebody a Karen. But that's. That's just me. I, I mean, I but this, that is the suggested you, you can use. You can refer to that white woman is being demanding or entitled, but you just you can't call her Karen. Uh, you cannot say user. You have to say client because user is often neg- uh, negatively associated with drugs. So even if you're so you're you're a user on your I don't know, your Internet platform stuff. You cannot say that you can't say victim anymore because it defines the fact that you are you have been victimized doesn't define all you are so you have to say a person who has experienced whatever and you've got the other things you can't say black mark you can't say black sheep you can't say grandfather because the term has its roots in the grandfather clause huh um, you can't say scalper or scalping you can't say scla- uh, slave labor The list goes on and on. You cannot say convict. Instead, you have to say a person who is or was convicted of of sexual assault. You can't say beating a dead horse because the expression normalizes violence against animals. I know you think I am making this up. I swear I am not. No, so you can't say beating a dead horse because that normalizes violence against animals. You cannot say you're in an abusive relationship Because the relationship doesn't commit abuse. Instead, you have to say you're in a relationship with an abusive person. You can't say we're going to kill two birds with one stone because the expression normalizes violence against animals. You can't say there's more than one way to skin a cat because the expression normalizes violence against animals. You can't say pull the trigger because it unnecessarily uses violent imagery. Instead, you have to say... Let's give it a go or let's give it a try, as opposed to let's pull the trigger on buying that car. You cannot say no rule. You cannot say the term rule of thumb. Why can't you say rule of thumb? Because apparently the phrase is goes back to an ancient rule that allowed men to beat their wives with sticks. You can't say hillbilly. Instead, you have to say a person from the Ozark region of the United States. It goes on and on and on. But you get the idea that this, this is now 2023. This is where wokeness has taken us. This is where we can't use these terms because somebody somewhere somehow may be offended well, all right, this is my New Year's resolution. I'm not going to pay attention to any of this stuff. And I understand there's words that have been used maybe in the past that take on a different connotation, and maybe, you know, language always has to change. But when we get to a point where you can't say American because somebody might be offended somewhere, it's time to just sit and say, you know, we need a sanity check. But, of course, you can't say sanity check. You could say, you know, boy, these people are really tone deaf on what goes on in reality. But you can't say... Tone deaf, it's enough to make you want to walk into your doctor's office, but you can't say walk in anymore. (sighs) You cannot make this stuff up. This is where we are in 2023, and it's one of the reasons I'm here to talk about it.
0: You're listening to our celebration of Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ. Jeff Vince Vitrano here. I enjoyed so much in
2: my days when I was at TMJ4 when we'd wake you up early to get you to come on our show. Always valued your perspective so much, to share this studio with you has been an honor. Congrats on 25 years and best wishes for all the good stuff ahead. I am super jealous of how
1: good you're about to get at golf. Take care, my friend. This summer, a number of you will be going to the airport. You will be checking your bags. You will be going through TSA. You will be waiting with your boarding pass, whether it's in your hand or on your phone. You will get onto the plane. You will stow your luggage in the uh, the bin above there. You will settle into your seat. And then there are two types of people in the world. Once the plane takes off and gets to its cruising altitude, there are two types of people in the world sitting on those planes. One type is the person that immediately pushes those buttons on the side of their seat and reclines their seat. The other type of person is the person who would love to recline their seat, but just recognizing that everything we're just And again, I'm talking about the the regular-sized seats. First class is different. So let's forget if you're in first class. But you're in the regular-sized economy seat. You are crammed in there. And the second type of person is the person who says, man, I would really like to recline my seat, but if so... It's going to be rude for the person who's behind me. So you know what? Even though the seat can recline, even though I might technically have a right to do it, it's not the right thing to do. You hear that on this program a lot. So I am not going to recline the seat. Now, I have a very strong feeling about this because I am 6'1". And um flying on these planes is, well it's it's not fun when i'm when unless i am flying with the dog that goes under the seat in that case i i find the window seat i i sit on the aisle that's my that's the spot because it gives me a little bit of room to stretch out my my legs um so i have a little bit more room so i look for the aisle seats but i am one of those people who even though i would love to unless There's that rare situation where the seat behind me is empty, which I don't think has happened in years and years. I'm not going to recline because I think it's rude. Now, that doesn't mean that other people won't be reclining. Now, the problem is, if you try to recline your seat when six-foot-one Jeff is sitting there, you're not going to get very far because you're going to just bang right into my knees as you start to go back, and I'm not giving way on this. So you can try to go back, but you're not going to get very far. But people will try nevertheless. Now, the seats are built to recline. When the pilot comes on, once you've hit, you know, cruising altitude, they'll typically say something like, sit back, relax, enjoy your flight. All right. You can. The seats are in general. They're made to recline. Should you recline your seat on a, and again, we're talking about this type of flights that we all have nowadays, full flight. It's not like there's nobody behind you. You know, do you recline your seat into the six-foot-one guy who's sitting behind you, or do you just make the decision, you know, I wouldn't like it if the guy or gal in front of me did that. I'm not going to do it to the person behind me. 855-616-1620. I've got poll results on this that I will share with you, but my question is, you're on that plane. Are you reclining your seat and if you're the person that has your seat, the seat in front of you being reclined into you, how do you respond to that? Jeff, I'm 6'8". I hate when someone tries to recline um, with me pushing back. No, I think that it's um, rude. Jeff, um, I'm 6'3", 230 pounds. I avoid flying like the plague. It's horrible. I can't even stand up in the bathroom. The whole experience is awful. Well, yeah, but we're discussing, you know, what about the reclining seats? Jeff, I wish none of the seats reclined. It would solve a lot of the problems. There's not enough room. And as a 5'10 lady with long legs, there's nothing like the seat hitting your knees. Now, people who are what we're going to describe as seat leaners, the, the argument is you paid for the seat, so you should be able to use it any way you want. Well, okay, I'm not sure about that, because there's all sorts of things that if you try to do them in your seat, they're not going to let you do. But the other argument is, if you're not supposed to lean back, the seats wouldn't be allowed to lean back. You will undoubtedly, if you're flying anywhere this summer, you may be faced with this issue. All right. Should people recline their seats on airplanes? Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, I personally do not recline my seat because I'm conscious of the other persons around me,
2: and uh, if someone's reclining their seat into me, I will block it uh, to keep my comfort zone.
1: Okay, so uh, as
2: much as I can.
1: Like, so how do you block it?
6: Well,
2: I just keep my knees up against yeah. the chair.
1: Yeah, yeah, That's what I end. up... I mean, you know, yeah. No, I know exactly what you that. That's I mean, thanks. To that that's what I end up doing as well. And it and part of it is just because. Again, my, my size, that's, that's where I end up fitting. And you know, you're, you're going to, there's just not enough room. The way airplanes are designed nowadays and the way they've got all the seats that are crammed into the cabins, there's just, I, maybe it's just the way my body is configured, but it's six, one, um, boom, you're going to be banging into my knees. And, and yeah, you're going to meet resistance. I'm not going to just simply pull them back. So maybe that's rude on my part, but it's kind of like, you know, hey, pal, I'm not reclining. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna tough this out. Maybe you need to tough it out as well. All right, different perspective. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. Okay, are you a recliner or not?
5: Yeah, I, one of the because I'm a little shorter
0: than you, I'm about 5'10". Um, what I've noticed is that when you recline, you really don't get much comfort. And if you're behind someone, you yeah yeah.
1: I'm sorry, Mike. We're lo- we're losing your cell phone there. Well, I, yeah, I don't. I mean, it's been so long since I have reclined a seat that I really don't know that it's going to add that much. Um I, I guess I just I kind of think it's rude, <laughs> and, and and my my experience is that most see it's kind of funny because I would say that most people don't do it. However, I promised you a poll. Um, uh, let's see, a new poll that's out, Out um, poll of flyers by something called App in the Air found that among the general flying public, roughly half of the passengers support reclining in their seat. So about 50-50, if you are a frequent traveler, frequent flyers say they believe, 70% believe they should be able to recline their seat. Eh, see, I don't think so. I, I go back again with the belief that it's it's rude. Um, Jeff, I fly around the Midwest for work one to three times a week. I'm six feet tall. I don't have any knee room to spare. I would say about 95% of the passengers do not recline their seats, and I am forever graced grateful. But when they do, I sometimes make it a point that they are up against my knees, um, and I push back. Um, Jeff, Chicago to Shanghai, 15 hours in the air. I paid $150 each way to choose my window seat or my seat, window or aisle. I never reclined my chair. Um, now, I don't mind if the person in front of me reclined theirs because I'm usually asleep. Now, if you start kicking my chair, we have a problem. Well, yeah, I had a flight back from Europe, and there was a little girl who, when she wasn't coughing, she was kicking the seat of, actually, it was my wife, and who was was, my wife said, Oh, the, the parents, they, they're, they're. I feel bad for the parents. I said, The heck with the parents. I feel bad for us. Russ, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
3: Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Hi, Russ. I'm 6'9. Oh, geez. And flying is a miserable experience, has been forever. <laughs> but now that they're jamming the seats closer and closer together, I mean, everyone's got to be miserable flying. You know, I. It, when I get in a seat, and I, I try to pay extra, you know, to get the exit row or right. a bulkhead, anything to reduce issues, um, you know, sometimes you get the guy in front of you who just, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, unaware of his surroundings. <laughs> as,
1: as, as opposed to being a complete jerk.
3: <laughs> well, yes, sir.
1: Yeah, got it, yeah.
3: <laughs> but, you know, if it I don't recline hardly. You know, if I do, it's just to stretch my back a little bit. I. Right. But uh, uh, these guys that do, I'll just end up. You know, I have got long legs, so I just put my knees up against it, and uh, yeah, you
1: know, it's not good.
3: Put right, okay. a few more. <laughs>
1: Well, right. That, that, see, and then what happens is then the, the people are trying to push them back and you, you kind of want to say, it's not going. I, one time the guy kept trying to push back. He said, it's not going anywhere, sir. You know, it's just, I, am I'm, I'm back here. And, you know, it, I guess if you want to wait till I get up to go to the bathroom and there's nobody to provide resistance, I don't know if, what I can do then, but otherwise, you know, you're, you're going to try to recline. It's just not the other thing. And one of our textures makes this point, Russ. The, the amount of space nowadays that you gain by reclining is so minimal that you know why you would why you would antagonize the people behind you is kind of beyond me.
3: Well, yeah, and it always seems to me, and, and I am somewhat uh, biased on this, is they give all the those exit rows and so on. They always seem to be short, short
1: people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. I I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank I got. I got to think about that. I well, it it is. Um, okay, so my wife is a perfect height. She's like five four. And I'm six one, and you know it, it is interesting because I, I'll look and and she can sit in the middle seat, and I think she'd prefer to have an aisle or the window. But sometimes because she, believe it or not, she wants to sit next to me. You know, she'll sit in the middle seat, and and at five four, it's not. It's not as bad. I'm not saying it's pleasant. It's not as bad as that. Now, there is, I was thinking, you know, they were doing these questions. Shaquille O'Neal. I remember I I was watching something. They were asking people questions. Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball star. And the question to him was, aisle or window? And, of course, he's like seven feet tall and stuff. Aisle or window? And without missing a beat, his line was, private. Private. which is i thought okay well that's that's kind
0: of the way to go that makes sense this is the best of jeff wagner highlighting the best moments of a 25-year career on wtmj jeff wagner's 25-year career at wtmj comes to an end for the rest of the year dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of jeff wagner throughout his career you're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: This is an organization where everybody says that, that character matters. But in the Brewers, I get the sense that character really does matter. The players like each other. When, when you put together a team, my sense is that you, you want people that are going to get along, and you want people that are going to be proud to be here, and that you're going to be proud to play for the Brewers.
2: Yeah, one of the things that, and this goes back Hey, okay, Uke. <laughs> Is Uke on? Oh, maybe maybe it's not uh, melded. I don't know how your broadcast. Uh, oh,
1: oh, there we go. We're we're talking to Brewers you. principal owner Mark Ottenasio. I'm also told that we are joined by Mr. Baseball, Bob Eucher, from our dugout. Bob, are you there? With us? Yes, I'm here. No. Hi, Bob. Uh, Mark Ottenasio, Jeff Wagner. We're out here in the we're out here in the mobile broadcast
4: facility. Welcome. What do you guys have a flat tire or something? Is that what you call them? I'll be right out there. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: hey, hey Bob, I, I was just checking this. 1964, you won, the, yes. you were part of the World Series Championship Team with the St. Louis Cardinals. I mean, how
4: cool yes. an experience was that? Well, <clears throat> you know Jeff, I was just talking to Craig Council about that. The stuff that we're doing now, the start of the playoffs, That's where the real pressure is. I mean, once you get through this stuff, the World Series really is a heck of a lot easier. It's just you against the other league, and there's no more playoff stuff. This, and especially starting with what we have now, which is a best of five, um, you know, the heat's on both clubs. And once you get through the playoff stuff, we didn't have that back then. It was... You win your league, the other guys win their league, and you play the World Series. That year in St. Louis, Jeff, the Phillies, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Cardinals were all tied. The game on the last day of the season determined who was going to win the championship, and fortunately the Cardinals won against the New York Mets, who at that time weren't, you know, what they turned out to be later on. But um, we won... The uh, Philadelphia Phillies uh, won their game. Had the Reds won the game, we'd all ended up in a tie um, on the last day of the season. We won by one game on the last day in '64. Wow!
0: wow.
4: You know, but Bob, here this this is—I mean, this is exciting now. I mean, the playoff stuff is—you know—going through. I'm going to Atlanta too to work down there. I'm a little that I'm a little worried about because there's a lot of people still alive that saw me play. And uh, that could be a little tough. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we, we don't buy that. But Bob, before you came on, Mark and I were talking about it, it's been 17 years since you know he took over as the principal owner. You've of course been the, the Brewers broadcaster for you know 50 years or, or whatever. Does it ever get old for
4: you? Um, you mean doing the games? No, yeah. not at all. Or, or, I I enjoy yeah. I enjoy coming here and. Uh, the relationship and <clears throat> Mark knows this uh, he's been a great friend not only ownership wise but personally um, for me, his family um, we've been friends for a long long time now and I remember the day that Wendy Seelig brought Mark into the booth to um, introduce him as the new owner of the uh, of the Brewers back at that time and um, the friendship that we've developed um, has been nothing short of outstanding for me. I mean, um, again, as I said, his whole family and and what they've meant to me as a as a member of the team here in Milwaukee. Uh, we talked about this the other day. I've never had a contract with Mark. Um, ours is a handshake. It was once a long, long time ago. It doesn't it's have really to happen again time. because really long time that's the way it's been. Yep. That, that's a, um that's absolutely outstanding. Yeah, Mark is not his never, head
2: right now. Yeah, no, really, a long time ago. You, one of the things that Jeff was talking about right before you came on was, you know, finding folks who wanted to be here, you know, players, and you know, you kind of personify that because you know you could had, and we talked about this at his 50th anniversary celebration. You had a, George Steinbrenner try to poach you, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, he had Hollywood <laughs> offers to
4: go just become an actor. And uh, he always wanted to be here.
1: That's how yeah, I fun. did. I, hey, I,
4: you know, that that never wanted to change, as far as you know, I was concerned. Anyway. <laughs>
1: Uh, matter of fact last night i was with some people including some folks who were retired executives from miller brewing who were telling stories about the days of the miller light all-stars and who were on the the oh, set man. when you were doing all those things and they, I, i'm telling you there, there were a lot of great bob euchre stories from those days going <laughs> around as well i i assume that was a lot of fun to do
4: <laughs> uh, the the miller light spots that we did it started for me back in 1985 and it ran through 1991 Um, some of the some of the greatest ads ever produced and it involved you know guys from football and baseball and basketball we had them all and the writers that they had a bunch of young guys Jeff that were in New York um, working for the ad company wrote spots that were perfect for everybody you know the no matter who you were and what you did as as an active player you had your role as as a member of the Miller Lite All-Stars you had you know whatever your spot was going to be and for me, it was either me or Rodney Dangerfield, you know, that um, that did did yeah. did kind of the off yeah. off off spot yeah. stuff. But it was really really good. It was it was oh man, it was great fun. I I can think of some of the things that we did that we can't talk about uh, yeah. to each other uh, during the course of those spots. That I mean, it lasted for a long long time. One of the greatest ad campaigns ever.
1: Bob, those might have been some of the stories that I was hearing last night from the guys who were on the set. <laughs> hey, hey, but, but Mark, you Probably know, one did. of the things, one, <laughs> one of the things that you know, this has been a challenging year with with COVID and and the return of, of fans in a gradual fashion. I don't, I'm not sure people realize, but you know, Brewers attendance, top ten attendance this year.
2: Yeah. So we were once again, I think, eight years out of the last ten top ten. This wasn't a special challenge this year because. We were one of the last five or six teams that uh, had unrestricted seating, and, you know, frankly, I think it's a testament, you know, you would say that, well, that was a challenge from a business standpoint. It's a testament to the county health commissioner here who wanted to keep everybody safe, and uh, Rick Schlesinger and his staff did a wonderful job keeping everybody safe and selling tickets at the right. same time. <laughs> That's not, right. not so easy when you can't just pack everybody in, and, and so... Uh, you know, it, uh, but I am looking forward. That all being said, there's nothing like a, a, a full attendance playoff crowd, and I think we're gonna have we're gonna have standing room only today.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, we're, from where we're sitting, we're just looking. I mean, already this front parking lot is half of it is already full, and parking lot was only supposed to open about 10 minutes ago. So fans are ready for playoff baseball. There's no question about that.
2: And always got to be ready for playoff baseball. It's it's hard, you know, especially in a year like this. where We brought it back to to five teams right and then now there's uh you know four teams in the national league and it's really interesting i was saying in press conference so you know we had never played the Braves in a playoff series imagine you know henry aaron had he been here to enjoy this um and uh you know giants and dodgers right so a lot of a lot of interest.
1: Right. Hey, hey, Bob. W- w- you know, you have been yeah. around different Brewers teams for for all the, these years. My sense is this team they really really like each other. They're, there's not prima donnas. Everybody's pulling for each other, and that's got to make for sort of a special environment.
4: Yeah, you know, you're you're right on target, Jeff. I mean, there's there's a lot of different personalities on every club, and and you know sometimes. Some players work out with certain teams, and sometimes they don't. And they move on to another team, and, and everything is okay. But here, uh, every guy that has been brought in by David Stearns, and Matt Arnold, and, and Mark, um, everybody seems to have worked out really good. Not only, not only what we have on the field, but what we have off the field. I'm talking about their families and the kids. That's all such a big part of what happens throughout the course of a year, and I'm, I'm, the one thing that I was really happy with, Jeff, was the fact that I was able to get um, tested, I took the shots, I took whatever I had to do to be in the clubhouse, to be with the team, to be with the players, and that's what they wanted, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to be around them, and no matter what it took, I was going to do that. And, um, you know, here we are chasing. I don't do the, the road stuff I used to do as much. But, again, um, it's not it's not that I can't do it. It's that we have two other guys at work uh, talking about Jeff and, and Lane Grindle uh, that do such an outstanding job. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get to a point in my life where... I'm going to embarrass myself or embarrass the team, I'm not going to do that. I still feel like I'm, I'm, you know, qualified and and can work and get excited about things that happen throughout the course of a game. I get as fired up as I did, um, you know, when I first started doing this. Um, We talked about it the other day um, at the press conference. um, When Merle Harmon and Tom Collins, way back when, When they were working and I only did one inning, I was comfortable because they stayed in the booth with me. But the day they left me by myself at Yankee Stadium uh, to do the fifth (laughs) inning and they got up and they walked out of the booth. They said, "Here's Bob." And I begged them to come back. And this is a what this is a true doing? story. Honest, I, I was really I was really scared. I had already you know, I had already done tonight shows and all of the other stuff. But doing a game by myself and having all my friends in Milwaukee listening to me doing play-by-play, it was awful. It was really bad. And the engineer finally said you better start because there's two outs and i, I just i couldn't talk I, I was scared to death it was unbelievable well yeah. we're, we're, everybody's glad you got you got over that mark
1: <laughs> mark the um your dear friend bob's dear friend bud sealick bud was legendary for living and dying on the results of the games i mean the stories were how you i can i can still picture him like pacing around old county stadium you know in the place are you like that i mean how how do you deal with that well first of all i yes. want to uh,
2: just register that both uh, bob and i are well aware that uh commissioner emeritus Seeley still lives and dies with every game. Yeah. <laughs> He's still, and, and he still calls me when, you know, there's some, oftentimes the unfathomable happens out there. But Commissioner still calls me and says, what do they tell you? <laughs> the commissioner, they tell me it was a broken bat hit and we lost the game. You <laughs> don't but, change. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely... Uh, I will say, you know, as I'm getting older myself, I, I don't deal with the, uh, I used to like embrace the anxiety, you know, this is what it's all about. Right. Now I just like to get to the end of a winning game and <laughs> Right. still have a glass of wine.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think the one, the one great thing with Mark, one great thing with Mark, as the new owner, we get paid now. That's one of the pluses. Um. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, if Bud is
1: listening, that, that that's Bob that just that's said. That's okay. <laughs> 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 That's it. Well, Fred I,
2: may be in his car coming over, and he does listen.
1: Oh, oh, believe me. Yes, <laughs> <You> I <will>. am. <laughs> b- b- <laughs> believe me. Absolutely. Um, Bob, as, as you look at this team, look, I mean, I know that there's all sorts of projections that are out there and stuff. This
4: team, it seems to me, really has the right stuff to go all the way. Well, you know what? They can They do a little bit of everything. I mean, they're going up against a club. Jeff, that is a big power club. Um, they hit a lot of home runs um, as the Dodgers did, and as the Dodgers did against that Cardinal um, team to, to walk it off and win. Um, but you know what? They got a, the, the thing they got here, I mean that I think is really top dog outstanding pitching i mean when you're facing today it's corbin burns tomorrow it's woodruff freddie peralta uh adrian hauser uh, eric lauer you're you're not going to have good days i mean that that's that's not a that's not a that's not a good thing to look forward to facing those and then if you if you happen to get by those guys for four or five innings now when they start bringing people from the bullpen um you're getting more of the same stuff you're getting you know velocity you're getting big breaking stuff um so the pitching staff here has been outstanding but you know defensively they're pretty good too i mean they've got a little bit of everything and uh young guys the deals that david Stearns made i mean here's willie adams luis arias um you know the guys that have been brought in here up and down um, and what a great job they did at Nashville for these players that are being, you know, put back to the minor leagues and then brought back up here. I mean, those are the, those are the guys you got to look forward to. To um, to do whatever you do, I'm watching Luke Maley walk right by me right now. He's a guy who came up with a couple of big base hits in a couple of games, and. Rick Sweet, who's the manager at Nashville, is the guy that, you know, governs all that stuff and takes care of that and reports each and every day to, to our people up here. So all of those, all of those people, Jeff, that have been here, maybe not on a, on a monthly basis, they've been here for a week, ten days, but they've contributed. That's all part of it, too. I mean, we can't forget about those people because some of the things that they did and some of the big base hits and some of the big games that they pitched in, that's all part of this whole scene here in Milwaukee when you're talking about, you know, this Brewers Mm -hmm. Ball Club 2021. Jeff, we had 61
2: players, 61, come through our Major League roster this year, which is a record for our club. Wow. And uh, so that's, you know... That's a lot of players contributing when you have a 25-man roster. Right.
1: Now, before I let you guys go, we we were talking about Commissioner Emeritus Selig and all, and and I think as somebody, I I look at this wonderful facility, and I I think about County Stadium, and I think about, I I still have some of the scars from the the political battles over building the enclosed park in the first place. But when we look back over the last 20-some years and the success Having that enclosed roof, it, it Mark, that, that, that's a factor as well, having this wonderful facility.
2: Oh, it's a, it's a key factor. It started. It, by the way, it's a key factor in my decision to go forward and, and buy the club, right? Because you could see with state-of-the-art, and you know, given the public-private partnership we've had with the stadium district, it's still state-of-the-art. You know, they've done everything that, that they would, were set out to do, and our ownership groups added about $100 million dollars the last right. 17 seasons. Uh, it helps us uh, keep fans coming because they know there's going to be a game to be played. It helps us attract players. Right. Uh, certainly, given the climate here, it would be a challenge to attract guys. If we, and Instead, it's an advantage. Okay. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I talk about that a lot. And by the way, Wendy still got a lot to do with that, too. She's right. somewhat of an unsung hero on this. But, you know, you and Henry Aaron and Robin Yount, a lot of folks made the trek up to Madison to... Right. to pitch to mix a metaphor for the pitch for the ballpark.
1: That was it. Mr. Baseball Bob Euchre,
4: principal owner of hey, Hasio Oh Jeff, before yeah? I leave, before I leave, just just check this out down the road. I think the correct correct pronunciation is emeritus. <laughs> just for future, you know future references. <laughs> okay well Well, there
1: there you go we'll we'll check that out mr baseball bob youker thanks so much for joining us have a great call today hope that you get the call all the way through the world series mark cotton thanks so much for being
0: with us once again a 25 year radio career coming to an end you're listening to the best of jeff wagner on wtmj All right. What are you seeing about in-person
1: turnout? Some of the predictions were huge early voting, huge absentee voting turnout, which would be conventional wisdom, thinking that would be good for Joe Biden. Um, A lot of the reports that are coming in is in Republican areas. Republicans, at least a lot of people, are turning out. At the polls in person. Jeff, my significant other voted around 10 in Pound, Wisconsin, in Marinette County. He was 306 in a town with a population of 652. I am voting later. I'm on my way home. Um, Jeff, I voted in Watertown this morning, arrived at 720, took 20 minutes to vote. This is the longest I have ever waited to vote in Watertown. Jeff, I just voted in Muskego, stood in line almost one hour, and everyone was talking Trump. Um, Jeff, um, 7 a.m., one hour wait in West Alice. Let's see. Uh, Jeff, my husband and I voted in the city of Delafield at 730 this morning. It took us about 40 minutes, which is the longest line, the well, longest I've ever waited to vote. I hope it's a good sign for Trump. I mean, Delafield... You would figure these are Republican areas. There's no question about it. And if you do have this huge in-person turnout, I think that would be a positive sort of sign. Jeff, there was an unbelievable line in Pewaukee, one and a half to two hour wait right now. Huh. That's interesting. I was looking at the Journal Sentinel's website. They've got a picture up in in Brookfield saying, oh, there's no wait in in Brookfield at at all. It's interesting. It sounds like they found... One of the very few communities where there's no weight, and they decided to put a picture of that up. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, I just voted in Elm Grove. That would be Brookfield. There was no one in front of me and no one behind me right at noon. Jeff, um, so far the turnout in Random Lake and Sheboygan County is roughly 50%. At noon, I was the 435th person to vote in person. Overall total vote number was 763. Random Lake has a population of just over 1,500. So that's all. That would be, do my math quick you know that's slightly more than 50 percent already turning out um so i mean people are coming out there's no question about it all right what are you seeing let's start with paul in east troy paul you're on wtmj good afternoon hey jeff yeah i've been working the polls all morning actually and just getting lunch here but in the town of east troy there's about a voter registration of about three thousand. there is over 1700
4: absentee ballots returned Right. Which means leaves about thirteen hundred that still have to come and go, and it's been steady long lines all morning. Right, it's went, you
1: know, it you know—it went from maybe twenty minutes to down to ten minutes, but there's been a solid line all morning, and I feel—I feel like that's a pretty. Selling uh, indi- indicator might get near hundred percent turnout. Well, well, isn't isn't that amazing? You know that the state record for turnout in a presidential election is seventy three percent statewide. I I think you know. However, this turns out, Paul, I, I think we're going to bust that record. I, I think that record's oh. going to just be obliterated by the t- end of the yeah. day. Yeah. No, thanks the call. People okay. just want their voice to call. Okay. Well, exactly. Th- thanks thanks to call and that's I mean that is that is one of the dynamics th- that's out there and if you if you are look if you are a Trump supporter and you're looking for encouragement that that would be it. I mean it's it's 65, it's 70 degrees outside. You know, the weather is not an excuse to keep people away from the polls and at least in heavily Republican districts, I think as a general rule, you're starting to see a, a big turnout. Again, you got to be careful Careful with that because it's all anecdotal. You know, we don't we don't know what's going on in in Lacrosse. You don't know what the turnout looks like in in Dane County. You don't know what the turnout looks like, for example, in the city of Milwaukee. You had a lot of people that returned their their ballots beforehand. All right, let's talk to uh, Maria in Franklin. Maria, you're on WTMJ. Hey there,
7: Jeff. I'm in like the southwest corner of Franklin, and I walked in and walked out. It was there was no line at all but there were plenty of people there we vote in a big gymnasium and so there's probably uh, twenty to thirty people at the time that were voting but divided up between all the wards in our right in our um in our area uh, there were no lines people were walking out voting walking out I think a lot of people voted early either in person or uh, absentee um, I do remember in 2016 um standing in line for about 40 45 minutes um and so i think a lot of people in our area figured out hey we can just go to city (laughs) hall and vote and get it over with ahead of time so i think i think that's you know
1: maria let me ask you this why why did you okay so so last time four years ago you, you had to wait in line for a long time why didn't you vote early this time why did you decide to show up today and vote
7: well, because I'm kind of old school, and I think I should be voting on Election Day. Okay. Yeah. So um, that's really what it comes down to for myself. Uh-huh. But um, I have elderly parents, and they definitely voted early, and I encourage them to. And um, so I am totally not against that. Right. But just for myself, it's it's just oh. that, you know, okay. I, I, I want to wait and no, th- vote on the day if I
1: can. No, thanks. No, I I'm, I understand that. I mean, I've said this before. I know it sounds kind of corny, but I love election days, if you can't tell. I, I just, I think, you know, I, I prefer it when my candidates win, but I, I love election days because it is so quintessentially American. We we get together. I I typically vote in person on election day but and a matter of fact this year my, my wife really wanted to do that but we voted early and it's because i'm sitting there thinking well I, i've got to work you know it, it's a it's a big day when you do what i do for a living all sorts of stuff going on you don't know what the weather's going to look like because you've got the pandemic you know you're not going to be able where i vote it's it's a relatively small area i'm sitting there thinking i don't want to be waiting in line in the rain for an hour and a half now it didn't turn out that way so so we voted early but i I'm with you, Maria. I love going there. You mark the ballot, you walk up, you put it in the machine and all of a sudden it, it just registers. I think that is so cool. All right. We're going to pick it up right there. It's a report from the front. I think it's going to be huge. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to exceed
0: expectations. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Daryl Brooks giving an interview saying he, he's he's just he feels like he's being demonized. He's treated like a monster after mowing down 60 people, killing six at the Waukesha Christmas parade massacre. My response to Mr. Brooks is: If you feel like you're being treated like a demon, if you feel like you're being considered a monster, get used to it. Those are my four words. And by the way, you're lucky that Wisconsin does not have a death penalty because, at least in my opinion. In my opinion, if there was ever a case that cried out for the death penalty, this would be that case. Let's start with Matt. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
6: Good afternoon. How are you doing?
1: Real well, thanks. What do you think?
6: Well, I just don't understand why Fox News would even give this guy the satisfaction of being granted an interview while this is still fresh, especially in the victim's minds. And the trauma that they experience. why would they even give this guy the airtime to talk? I mean, I think that that's an issue in and of itself right there, because the way our society is, there's going to be people, unfortunately, that are going to go out and sympathize with this guy. And who knows what kind of ideas this guy might even yeah. give somebody else in the future. That's, that's yeah. my issue
1: question with that well no i and, and and matt i think that's a very good question because that's one of the things that popped into my mind as well it's the, the fact that this sociopathic demonic monster is looking for some sort of, of sympathy and decides that he he wants to talk not to explain his actions but just to complain about the way he's treated i i agree with you but one of my questions was why would anybody give this guy that forum to do that
6: I agree and I don't know what their agenda is to it. Almost seems like they're
1: well, I don't think it's a, I mean I no, think well, I don't, well, I, don't think so. I, mean, I don't think it's an agenda. It's we we've got the scoop. See that this is this is what happens in the media nowadays. It, it's it's we've we've got the scoop. You know, we're going to be able to say we've got the exclusive, or we've got the first interview with, with Daryl Brooks Jr., you know, the, the guy who's responsible for the Waukesha Christmas Parade massacre. And so the the idea is you're going to try to get eyeballs that tune in to things like that. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't know that the intention is to portray him in a sympathetic light, but clearly the way the guy, he's sobbing, and he's all unhappy, and, you know, he's just talking about, I'm, I'm being treated as a monster, I can't believe this. Well, yeah, I, I, and and you are correct that maybe there's going to be somebody out there somewhere who looks at this and says. Oh, the, this, this poor guy. I mean, life, life just didn't treat him appropriately, and it's just he didn't get all the help he needed. And, you know, despite the fact that John Chisholm's office kept putting him back out on the street and giving him chance after chance after chance, you know, he, he never really did have a, a chance. No, I, I think there's an element of that, and I do think you, you have to kind of wonder about the news judgment that goes into this. The larger question, though, is the guy is whining that, you know, I'm being treated as a monster. Well, like I say, get used to it. Uh, let's see. Jeff? Mr. Brooks? (laughs) How dare you call him Mr. Brooks? Well, okay, Jeff, I would say, as you frequently do, life is tough, get a helmet for him. Um, Yeah, I think that that's it. Jeff, my thoughts are, if the shoe fits, wear it. Monster indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think that, you know, using the phrase, I'm being treated as a demon, I'm being treated as a monster. Yes, anybody that drives their car through a parade, picking off as many people as they can, and results in this type of carnage, and then tries to flee responsibility, you know, it's it's not like, oh, gee, the brakes went out of my car. No, he intentionally did what he did. Then he tried to flee. You know, he tried to scam somebody into letting him call an Uber or things like that. No, there is evil in this world. See, that's what some people do not want to confront. That's the problem that exists with people like John Chisholm, the district attorney, who's supposed to be out there protecting people. What he doesn't realize is that, or what he refuses to accept, is there are in fact sociopaths in the world. There are people who are the faces of evil. And for those people, the community needs to be. And I understand it may be politically incorrect, and I understand that, you know, if you go after the people who are truly evil and you do everything you can to keep them in prison for lengthy periods of time, well, maybe you won't get some of the awards from the social justice people on the East and West Coast. But you know what? You will be doing your job to try to keep people safe. Daryl Brooks complaining now that he is looking at life in prison without the possibility of parole, now complaining that, oh, they're just not treating me very well. Well, okay, if he was worried about that, maybe he should have thought of it not before he decided to drive that SUV through the Christmas parade crowd. Maybe he should have thought of it, I don't know, years ago when he embarked on this psychopathic life of crime creating the fact that he was a career criminal, maybe he should have been concerned then that maybe people would be treating him as a monster. But as far as I'm concerned, if you behave in a monstrous fashion, well, you deserve to be treated like a monster. And I cannot imagine a a bigger poster child for the definition of monster than Daryl Brooks Jr. And if he feels unhappy with that, my response is too bad. Get used to it.
0: This is the best of Jeff Wagner, highlighting the best moments of a 25-year career on WTMJ.
1: When we last spoke, we were still processing our reaction to the government missile strike, the U.S. government making the decision that it was going to take out an Iranian uh, bigwig, you know, one of their military masterminds, who had over the last couple decades been responsible directly or indirectly for the deaths of hundreds of Americans, hundreds of Israelis, and was one of the the leaders in, in spreading kind of global terrorism. The U.S., President Trump in particular made the decision that enough is enough, and I think as everybody knows, what they did is they ordered a, a missile strike from drones that ended up taking out the Iranian general while he was in Iraq. This generated a lot of hand wringing at the time. They had a funeral over the weekend in Iraq, and you had people taking to the streets and you know denouncing the, the US government you in Iran. You had the Iraqi parliament in a non-binding vote saying that they, they want the U.S. out of Iraq. And you had a number, now not an enormous number, but a number of of the usual crowd, the anti-war protesters, you know, the folks that, that show up all the time everywhere, and they did it in Milwaukee and they did it in other cities, you know, protesters showing up, you know, protesting the, you know, U.S. attack on this terrorist who had been responsible for, like I say, hundreds, maybe thousands of deaths, and apparently was continuing to plot the deaths of more. Some of the signs I'm looking at: no more war. Um, uh, let's see. I'll uh, I'll walk to our cities, you know. And again, so we we don't want oil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The more I think about this, the more I listen to some of the hand wringing reaction. The more I listen to, I don't know, some of the anti-Trump folks out there who candidly, I think if Barack Obama or George Bush had done this, would have been applauding it. But now because it's President Trump that ordered this, you get all this hand-wringing. The more and more I think about the decision to take out this terrorist leader, the more I am convinced that it was absolutely the right move for the president to make. I mean, for years, we have kind of stood back, and you've had a President Obama, for example, who talked about, like, drawing a line in the sand and daring people to step over it, and then when other countries did, we, we ended up doing nothing. I think this clearly sends this message that the United States is done with allowing people to plot the deaths and attacks on America or or other installations or other institutions or other countries. I am convinced, and I firmly believe, that, yes, the the world is, in some respects, perhaps a more tense situation, but is it a more dangerous situation than it was, I don't know, say Thursday? Not convinced of that at all. And I understand you have a handful of the usual suspects who are out there protesting. I don't know. Did the president do the right thing? My answer is yes. I admit I'm getting, getting more and more frustrated over the weekend as you have a number of these political opportunists who are denouncing the, the president for taking a move that I think anybody has to understand makes the world a safer place place, but because it's Donald Trump, well, this cannot be the the right move. Here's an interesting text. Jeff, I voted for Obama once and for Trump. I'm not going to vote for him again, and I support his impeachment. That being said, though, diplomacy should always be the first option until it's proven that it's no longer serving our benefit or the world's benefit. The, uh, Trump's team has been very patient with Iran, but kudos to the president for saying enough is enough. When diplomacy clearly won't work, it's not our decision to wipe out Dangerous terrorists. It's their own decision. And that's what you saw. And I guess I agree with that completely. All right, here's another text. There's no way we are not safer now. Why most? Uh, why not assassinate uh, Putin or Assad? They are just as guilty, if not more, of killing Americans abroad. They are far more dangerous to the U.S. Well, no, uh, Iran is different than Russia. And, and if you don't understand that, you don't understand the world situation. I mean, Iran is a rogue nation. Iran has been actively trying to figure out how to kill Americans and how to kill Israelis and how to disrupt that region for the longest time. You had this clown who was acting with impunity because he felt that, you know, he could hide in plain sight. He felt that President Obama didn't have the guts to launch military strikes against him. He felt that President Bush didn't have the guts to launch military strikes against him. And he felt that President Trump didn't have the guts to launch military strikes against him. And well, he, he turned out, it turned out that he was wrong when it came to President Trump. Now, I understand that this, you can make the argument that says, well, okay, this is now helped to further, you know, disrupt and destabilize Iraq. But let's face it, Iraq has been destabilized for quite a a while, guess the question becomes you know how much does the United States have to take as far as again allowing a tax on our interest? Jeff, it was absolutely the right thing to do, and if everybody thought that uh, Iran. Had been, hadn't been planning terrorist attacks before this happened. It's them that ended up falling off the turnip truck. Yeah, I, I I get it. So what's Iran's response? Iran says over the weekend, well, now we're we're going to continue our our development of you know nuclear power and thing nuclear weapons and stuff like that. Well, the truth of the matter is, I don't think Iran had had ever really stopped doing that. Now, I'm not smart enough to know what the ultimate answer is to how you deal with Iran. What you'd like to see big picture is you'd like to see regime change you'd like to see the iranians realize that you know maybe it would be nice to join the the greater world community and the way you do that is by okay replacing the the rogue government that you end up having now how you affect that now that's the tougher question but for everybody who says okay that this is a terrible thing for the, the president well I hope to have done, I guess the question is how many more hundreds or thousands of lives, American lives, Israeli lives, how much more destabilization to the Middle East would you have to put up with and at least at this particular point in time you know President Trump has drawn that line in the sand and he said "All right, look you keep attacking tankers in the Straits of Hormuz you know you keep launching these efforts to try to kill other people and there are going to be consequences and yeah is it a little bit more destable that's fine but for the people that are out there that are holding up those signs saying no war I'm with you nobody wants war but what did you think these rogue Iranians were trying to accomplish wake up smell the coffee